Welcome to the Energy Markets Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Lee, and our guest today is Pete Quist, Deputy Research Director with Open Secrets, a nonprofit dedicated to shining a spotlight on the role of money in politics. Pete, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So here at the Energy Markets Podcast, we have been trying to shine a spotlight on the role played by monopoly utilities' money to help them dominate politics at both the federal level as well as the state level, but particularly at the state level, to guarantee legislative and regulatory outcomes that often favor their shareholders at the expense of consumers. Several of our guests have noted that there are certain policy approaches that could be taken in terms of promoting good outcomes in the efforts to promote a clean energy grid and clean energy economy, but those policies languish and generally money in politics seems to dictate the outcome to the benefit of the utility shareholder rather than the energy consumer. So that's why I welcome our conversation today. Uh, so why don't you start by telling us about Open Secrets, what you do, and then we'll try and double back into the thread that I set up here. Yeah, so here at Open Secrets, uh, we collect political campaign finance and lobbying data uh, at the federal and state levels. And so what this means is that when, for example, a candidate runs for office for your state legislature, uh, they have to file campaign finance reports uh, disclosing uh, who's giving their campaign money to run for office. Uh, and we collect those reports uh, and make that data searchable. Uh, and the same is true for candidates running for other elected office, including uh, US Congress or other state government offices. Uh, and we also collect uh, the data for where we can for uh, what is happening in the lobbying sphere. So when organizations are engaging um, in conversations with Congress or with your state legislature uh, about policies, um, they uh, have to often report how much money they're spending uh, to do that. And oftentimes what this means is how much money they're paying a lobbying firm or a lobbyist to represent them um, and, uh, and try to persuade uh, legislators uh, or educate legislators about an issue or persuade them on a position. Yeah, so I use the term shine a spotlight, but there's also something that's commonly called dark money. Is that something you guys try to shed a light on as well? We do try. Uh, so dark money refers to the, uh, I've talked about a couple of avenues of political engagement here. The, uh, the third one is independent expenditures. And these are cases where a person or a group might run an ad to support or oppose a candidate who is running for office uh, without directly working with that candidate's campaign uh, or, or making a contribution to that candidate. And this is where the term independent comes from. It's independent of the candidate's campaign. And so the group will run a television ad or a, or a radio ad, or maybe send a mailer or something. Uh, and usually it's portraying a, a candidate in a negative light. Uh, so you think of the, the ads with the black and white picture of the candidate and the thunder and lightning in the background and tell so-and-so they're terrible and, and that kind of stuff. Um, that kind of spending uh, is never subject to any kind of a limit on the dollar amount uh, that could be spent on those ads. Uh, and the dark money piece uh, refers to when you have uh, nonprofit corporations engaging in that kind of spending. Uh, and these nonprofit corporations can just pop up almost specifically for this kind of activity. Uh, and what they'll do is collect contributions from people who want to engage in this way uh, and then run these ads and not have to disclose where their money comes from. And they can have pretty opaque names like Americans for America or something. <laughs> well, we certainly have a lot of those in the electricity sector. A prominent example of this involved a ballot initiative in Nevada a few years ago where supporters of the initiative wanted to amend the state constitution to provide for competition in electricity at retail. And to change the state constitution, the measure needed to be approved by voters twice. 
So the first time through, Warren Buffett's Nevada Power didn't get involved in the debate, and the initiative passed overwhelmingly by 70 to 80 percent. But when the measure was brought up again two years later, the utility took a very public position opposing the measure. It created one of these dark money groups, spent a lot of money on tons of ads on television and radio, generating a lot of unwarranted fear about retail electricity competition, and the measure was soundly defeated. Uh, that's just one example we've talked about on the podcast. Yeah, and, and ballot measures are really an interesting place to, to see that happen. Um, because there isn't a candidate involved in a ballot measure, uh, jurisprudence uh, is that there are never limits on contributions to ballot measure committees. Uh, and as you mentioned, Nevada Power sat out of the 2016 measure. We came in with tens of millions of dollars on the 2018 um, measure. Uh, with about over $60 million at least that we can see, uh, which they gave to a, a committee, a ballot measure committee that was formed to oppose that measure called Coalition to Defeat Question 3. Uh, and they solely funded it essentially and um, and were successful in, in defeating that measure the second time around. And when you have these cases where the measure is on the ballot twice, um, that provides a pretty stark example of how money can really sway the vote. Particularly with complex issues, um, this seems like a pretty straightforward issue where it's just deciding whether or not you can have competition in a marketplace. Um, but most consumers are not particularly informed on, on a lot of the issues that they have to vote on on the ballot measures. Uh, and so it's sometimes easy to create different uh, messaging. Yeah, exactly. It's also easy to spread misinformation and scare stories. That's particularly effective when you target the fear factor of the voter. I'll note, too, that uh, on energy-related measures generally, so not just in Nevada but across the country, um, since we've been keeping track for about 20 years now, uh, for energy-related measures, the energy industry has a history of really stepping in on those measures. Uh, we've collected around $821 million spent on energy-related ballot measures, and 582 of that is from energy interests themselves. Uh, so right around two-thirds of it uh, is actually from the energy um, sector compared to all other sectors combined uh, or individuals. Well, the energy sector, particularly the utility sector, is always a top dollar contributor, right? They're always in the top 10. I, j I just looked on your website and I saw in the top 10 at least three utility companies, if I remember right. And, and FPL, I think, was first or second up there. Exelon was high on the list. So Open Secrets just follows the money, right? You don't really get into how that affects the policy or decision making by the lawmakers. So it's really difficult to tell when, in terms of lawmaker votes, uh, exactly when spending affects the outcome of, of a legislative policy. It's a little easier with the um, the ballot measures in the in the case that you men just mentioned. That was uh, quite a, a clear example of of money uh, impacting the outcome of a ballot measure vote. Uh, in terms of the way that energy companies uh, and other industries approach contributions to uh, candidates and elected officials. Um, the typical approach is that they will give money to incumbents, uh, so people who are already in office, uh, who are already making policy, and who are likely to win their re-election campaign. Uh, in our 20-plus years of, stat of tracking politics here, uh, incumbents win their re-election campaigns uh, usually between 90 and 95% of the time that they choose to run, uh, and so they're almost a shoe-in. Uh, and this is true of the energy industry as well. Uh, many industries will give to incumbents regardless of party affiliation. They just want to give to the people who are in office. Uh, and academic research shows that uh, making those contributions does help to get your foot in the door for having meetings with people, getting your lobbyists to have meetings with people. 
Um, the energy sector does tend to lean a little bit more Republican, uh, although some of that uh, may be related to the fact that in states where energy is a very big economic driver, those states also tend to be more Republican as well. Uh-huh. Well, there's been a couple of recent examples of how money affected policy outcomes at the state level. One of them was a recent ballot initiative in Maine. Did you follow that one? Yeah. As I understand it, that was the most expensive ballot initiative in the history of that state. It was, yep. Oh, and then we had very interesting developments in Ohio and Illinois, where the utility companies were accused of employing outright bribery to obtain outcomes they wanted in terms of consumer subsidies to prop up legacy nuclear and coal plants. That's different, though, right? It's not something that fits into this puzzle. It, it's a little different than uh, the regular campaign finance stories. However, it does illustrate uh, the impact and the value of money. Uh, so while we're looking at campaign contributions to candidates um, as uh, sometimes kind of a chicken and egg question about whether the, you're making contributions to somebody who supports your issue or trying to get somebody to support your issue by making contributions, um, these kinds of bribery cases are very clearly efforts to uh, and, and measurements by the people doing the bribing uh, that this is going to be successful to, to, sw to sway somebody. A couple of stories popped up in my news feed a while back. One, one was out of Ohio. The other was out of Florida, in which lawmakers have introduced bills that would change the way utility commissioners are chosen in their states. In Ohio and Florida, they're appointed by the governor, and they generally have a selection committee that will forward proposed names to the governor for his final choice. But lawmakers in both Ohio and Florida are advocating for changing to elections to determine the utility commissioners. So I'm wondering, do you have a sense of whether or not electing policymakers that way results in a better outcome for the public interest or not? So we don't have robust data on the policy outcomes of these kinds of commissions. But I can say that when you elect these, um, these offices, um, the energy industry very much gets involved in those elections through these campaign finance, uh, these contributions to those campaigns. Uh, and so certainly that is something that is new uh, when you elect these offices. The Railroad Commission in Texas um, is sort of misnamed. It actually um, regulates oil and gas in Texas. Uh, and they get a lot of money from the oil and gas industry, for example. And the same is true of public utility commissions and public service commissions that regulate electric utilities and so forth. Uh, and so that is something that we can expect to see when those offices become elected offices, if those bills pass. Interesting that you mentioned Texas. In a, in a recent episode, we talked about how the natural gas industry's influence in politics in Texas probably contributed to preventing a legislative outcome that would have required investments in the oil and gas sector aimed at assuring that the blackout that we saw last winter wouldn't recur. All we need to do is to winterize the natural gas industry in the state, and we can assure a more reliable electricity grid. But the industry is not interested in spending that money, apparently, and they got that outcome in the legislature. Now, the Railroad Commission since then has initiated a docket uh, a few months ago to ostensibly address the issue, but in the meantime, the grid in Texas managed to just squeak by this past winter without another problematic outage like we saw last year. Yeah, and this is absolutely um, the case uh, that oftentimes industries, including uh, the electric industry or, or the energy uh, sector more broadly, uh, are actually trying to prevent um, a change in policy. And so this can be kind of hard to measure even 
because some of what they're trying to do in terms of legislative activity is to prevent bills from being introduced in the first place or, or from being heard. Uh, and so it's uh, much easier to measure um, for the media to report on and, and for academics to measure uh, the outcomes of legislation that are being seriously considered uh, or come to a floor vote in a chamber uh, or a committee vote, something that triggers attention to a piece of legislation. Uh, but preventing any action can be much harder to recognize. It's hard to measure what isn't there. Uh-huh. Well, we saw in Georgia, which has an elected state utility commission, by the way, the regulators authorized the construction of new nuclear facilities, the cost of which has ballooned like threefold to $30 billion. And there doesn't seem to be any end in sight in terms of the cost overruns. So you don't have any data that suggests having an elected commission results in that kind of anti-consumer outcome? Unfortunately, our database doesn't include uh, the policy outcomes uh, that these commissions are engaged in. Uh, there are some resources, though, uh, that uh, do have databases that are uh, somewhat related to policy outcomes. Uh, one of the ones that comes to mind initially is uh, Good Jobs First, which tracks things such as uh, subsidies for, for projects. So if you're building a large energy development, for example, uh, there is a database there uh, that will show you how much money the state is contributing to this kind of energy development and who's receiving that money, uh, for example. Um, I'll also mention that the National Conference on State Legislatures uh, is an organization that exists primarily to inform or provide uh, data to state legislators and their staff, but they do have a lot of great public resources and they're at ncsl.org. And if you uh, were to visit their websites and go to their research bar menu, um, they have uh, a lot of information available in issue areas, including uh, electric and energy issues, um, where you can find pieces of legislation all over the country that are introduced um, in, in that issue. Well, that's good to know. But l- let's get back to the, the states I'm trying to highlight here. So now in Virginia, Dominion Energy's Virginia Power has been battling efforts by environmentalists and competitive energy providers who are trying to put a dent in the monopoly protection that Dominion enjoys in that state. You know, these green groups and uh, competitive energy providers, they want to take advantage of a provision in state law that would allow these competitive providers to sell clean, renewable energy directly to retail customers, bypassing the utility. And Dominion has uh, been battling those efforts. So this is something we see throughout the country where either policymakers or stakeholders are trying to get the utilities to be more proactive in terms of investing in renewable energy resources. That was what prompted the Florida lawmaker to propose electing regulators in Florida because he felt that the Florida Commission's appointees were too, for lack of a better word, were too in the pocket of the utility interests in the state. But in Virginia, Dominion has created one of these organizations that purports to represent the consumer, but it's really representing the utility's interest. So are, are you looking at that example there? Uh, so we don't have that one in Virginia um, because of some of the um, limitations on our resources in, in collecting the, the dark money um, angle. But this is not uncommon um, where you will find uh, industries uh, hiding behind a nonprofit corporation. Typically, it's a 501c4 um, or, or a 501c6 in the case of, of industry interests. Uh, C4s are the uh, penultimate dark money group. Uh, these are the ones that... Um, their social welfare groups is what they're colloquially called. 
Um, they are prohibited from spending most of their money on partisan politics, but they can spend half of it overtly on partisan politics. Uh, and then uh, in order to maintain their nonprofit status, that other half has to be used for some other purpose. Uh, however, you can run political ads uh, that feature um, a candidate and, and are supporting or opposing the candidate uh, subtly uh, without overtly saying, vote for this candidate or vote against that candidate. And those kinds of ads may be reported to the IRS in many circumstances as educational ads about an issue. Uh, and so if they are running those kinds of ads, uh, trying to um, tell the public that this issue needs to be viewed in this direction, uh, even if they're featuring a candidate, um, that may be something that is permitted and still able uh, to allow them to keep their nonprofit status. And so you'll see these kinds of organizations pop up quite a bit and do that. Mm -hmm. The 501c6 organizations I mentioned are trade associations and they're things like the Chamber of Commerce and so forth. Well, right. But with C6s, you know who's providing the money. Yeah, you generally know that it's a business interest. The 501c4s are very difficult to identify. Right. And that, I believe, is what we have at play in Virginia. That's yeah, very likely. Now, Arizona is another good example where they've been wrestling for years, I guess five years now, with a proposed policy to promote renewables versus the coal and nuclear that the predominant utilities are invested in there. Um, earlier this year, after five years of debate, a solid Republican commission killed that policy goal to transform the industry from fossil fuels to clean energy. By the same token, some commissioners on the Arizona Corporation Commission in recent years have sought to promote retail competition in electricity, which a lot of guests on this podcast have said would work better than monopoly regulation in terms of promoting a clean energy transition. And that's been thwarted at least twice now in Arizona. Is that a situation that Open Secrets uh, keeps an eye on? So we're always tracking how much money we can see uh, from the energy industry in terms of uh, contributions to these uh, elected office holders. Uh, and so uh, one of the things that we can do uh, is look at um, contributions to legislators or, or members of elected uh, utility commissions uh, and group that by uh, economic sector. Uh, and typically what we'll see with these commissions is that the uh, energy sector is one of the highest ones, uh, usually the highest sector making contributions to these commissions. Uh, most of the other industries just don't care who's in that office. Uh, and so uh, what you're dealing with are um, elected officials that are working in a very specific policy area, as opposed to like a state legislator who uh, will be working in many different policy areas. In fact, uh, almost all policy areas, right? And so you'll be getting contributions from many different industries and just from individuals, uh, members of the public who like their elected official and so forth. But these uh, utility commissions don't tend to draw a lot of attention from the general public uh, or from other industries. And so you'll see uh, contributions from the energy industry specifically, uh, usually dominating those pools. Oh, and I guess that is a contributing factor to what is termed regulatory capture. Right. Do you want to explain to the listeners what regulatory capture is? Uh, so this is a case where uh, basically you have um, the fox watching the hen house. Uh, and so uh, when you have uh, people that are working on a specific issue uh, who have their elections essentially dictated uh, in terms of um, the economic uh, their economic viability uh, by the industry that they're trying to regulate. And even with the unelected commissions, we, we have that sort of money influence because they are appointed by the governor and legislature, and those politicians are beholden to the corporations that are financing their campaigns. That's true. And it's also true that 
um, these organizations uh, can still lobby these agencies, even if they aren't elected. Uh, lobbying disclosure at the state level uh, for uh, lobbying efforts that target executive agencies, such as public utility commissions and the like, uh, tend to be pretty poor. Uh, lobbying disclosure in general at the state tends to be pretty poor. Um, typically what you're talking about with this lobbying um, spending is how much a company is paying or, or a union or any other group is paying a lobbying firm to represent them. Uh, that constitutes usually more than three quarters of the money that an organization will spend. It kind of depends on the contract, but usually 70, 70 to 90% of the money that an organization will spend on lobbying is just that compensation piece uh, to the firm or the lobbyist representing them. And only about half of the states require that to be reported uh, at all, regardless of who they're lobbying. Uh, and then within the states that do require that to be reported, um, many of the regulations are specifically geared at legislative lobbying or uh, lobbying the governor's office. Uh, so the legislative process specifically, and less the regulatory processes that these commissions are engaged in. So it's very difficult to see that, but that doesn't mean that the organizations aren't lobbying those commissions. Uh-huh. Well, is there anything we can do about this? Um, so one of the things that um, uh, people in general uh, who uh, are advocating for various kinds of commissions, including energy commissions, um, to be a little bit more neutral, uh, do tend to support that um, committee selection system with an approval uh, by the governor. Um, and this is true in judicial reforms and so forth as well. Um, the difficulty with elections is that uh, with these kinds of commissions, they're working on um, very specific issues that will draw the attention of a very specific industry. Uh, it is possible for that industry to hide some of its efforts through this dark money spending and through this undisclosed lobbying activity that we've talked about. Uh, and it's easy then to um, message the public in a way that uh, they may not understand exactly what they're trying to regulate because nobody's can't expect the general public to be extremely knowledgeable about specific issues. Um, so enhanced transparency is what we advocate for. Uh, so if you are going to elect those offices, or even if you're not, uh, having better lobbying disclosure is essential so that the people can see who is trying to influence the policy outcomes of their, of their government, uh, regardless of what office that is. Uh, and if you're running for office, if it's an elected office, we need better uh, transparency around that independent spending piece. So if a nonprofit organization is engaging in independent expenditure activity, it's really critical to know who those donors are. Uh, there are some efforts to try to do that. Uh, California is really leading the way with their disclosure rules, uh, where if you are a nonprofit organization engaged in political activity in California, you do have to disclose some of your donors um, to account for that money that you spent. So it's not all of them. Um, but it's those who specifically um, made their contributions to engage in political activity in California. And then after that, it's the most recent contributors to the organization. Uh, and uh, with the understanding that they are most likely to understand that their contributions are going to a political purpose since they came in uh, immediately before that political activity was engaged in. Uh, and then working your way back chronologically to see who those donors are and at least get an idea of um, what this group is, even if you don't see everybody that's funding it. And in fact, in California, if a nonprofit organization reports another nonprofit organization as, as its donor, um, then you have a similar kind of rule for that one, um, which is a very robust system. Sunshine is the best disinfectant. That's what uh, Justice Brandeis said, right? Right. Yeah, this, yeah. Is, um, this is absolutely true. Okay. Well, I really appreciate your time, Pete. I, I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to add uh, for the good of the order here. I think we really covered it all. These three avenues of political engagement, the, the political contributions, 
independent expenditures and the lobbying are really how you influence uh, policymaking, or at least try to. Uh, the contributions uh, are typically pretty well reported around the country, uh, but we have a lot of room for improvement in the independent expenditure activity and the lobbying activity. Well, thanks, Pete, and all the best with your organization. I think you do important work, especially for journalists who are trying to suss this sort of thing out. Thank you. Uh, it's nice to get our heads out of our spreadsheets and, and talk to folks and, and, and be as helpful as we can.